I think one other thing to, to remember is that uh, when we look back at historical examples, they don't always lend themselves to predicting the future as such. And for every industrial revolution out there, uh, they are difficult to explain. And often when you look back, it's easy to explain why things happen the way they happen. Uh, but when you try to predict the future, uh, it's actually much harder than that. And I've learned the hard way not to make predictions about the future. This is the Definitely Uncertain podcast brought to you by Goldrock Capital. Each week, we look at how high net worth families can improve their lives, decisions and investments in a deeply uncertain world. We always aim to provide practical information, even if we can't offer specific investment advice. This is the Definitely Uncertain podcast, and my name is Darren Rockman, and I am a partner at Goldrock Capital, the more than 20-year-old multifamily office servicing high net worth families in Israel and around the world. And today on the podcast, Professor Sava Sabas and it is uh, coming to us from Newcastle in the United Kingdom. Hi, Sabas. Hi, Darren. Uh, great to be on the podcast. It's great to have you. So, uh, Sabas is the David Goldman Professor of Innovation and Enterprise at Newcastle University, uh, where he's also a senior lecturer in management. Um, he holds a, a PhD in theoretical physics and a second doctorate in business administration and uh, is a researcher who focuses on electronic business, digital technologies, and how they uh, impact and transform organizations and societies alike. Um, Savas puts a strong emphasis on innovation, on new value creation, and also the exploitation of entrepreneurial activities. So, so Savas, I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by your background. How does a theoretical physicist end up as a professor of management uh, at a business school? Well, uh, primarily due to a happy accident, I suppose. I mean, as a kid, I used to do well in science, so on visits following such a career uh, after school, and after university, uh, I ended up studying theoretical physics at Newcastle and the Red for, for a PhD in the area, where I spent primarily most of my time writing code in Fortran 77. 77 right. actually stands for the uh, decade, well, the year that the, uh, the, the protocol was established. So you can imagine how fascinating uh, this was. Uh, but uh, when I graduated, I started thinking what I was going to do with uh, all those uh, skills and experiences. And uh, it just so happened that it was the time of the first dot-com boom and bust, right. uh, unfortunately. Uh, so it was a very exciting time. I decided to start a couple of internet businesses. Clearly, I wasn't very successful. Otherwise, I have not ended up being an academic. But in all seriousness, I think it was the realization that in order to, to be successful in businesses, you know, yeah, certain things you can figure out as you're going along. Uh, by having a bit of a knowledge, background knowledge, uh, skills related to management uh, was going to be helpful. So I started thinking of doing an MBA, too expensive for someone who just graduated after seven years of studies. So actually, for my sins, I decided to do a part-time uh, doctorate in business administration simply because it was easier to handle the payment. But that, again, drove me back into research. And one thing led to another. So I started as a uh, teaching assistant at Newcastle, then promoted to lecturer, senior lecturer, and then eventually, as you said earlier, I became the David Goldman Professor of Innovation and Enterprise. So, uh, yeah, uh, a bit of an unusual story. But I think perhaps what is more interesting in that story is, uh, and probably very relevant to our discussion today, is how 
flexible uh, you can be when you have this kind of STEM skills uh, that typically associated with natural sciences, say uh, maths, stats, and programming. Um, and uh, despite the challenges that uh, natural science education had over the years, it's coming back with the might now uh, with data scientists, camouflage, well, physicists camouflage often as data scientists. Right. Um, so I think, uh, you know, th this kind of skills are really important we have and uh, very relevant to, uh, uh, to AI, as we'll see later on. Right. So, so you, 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 you've set me up perfectly for the rest of the discussion. Um, <laughs> you and I met, um, uh, though I'd heard much about you, um, you and I met for the first time recently uh, at he the Hebrew University in Jerusalem um, at, at an event where much of what was discussed uh, was the impact of artificial intelligence and how that is now beginning to, to move its way through uh, really all layers of business and society. So um, I think that you know because this is a, a technical area that's moving into the mainstream, and we're still at the beginning. Let's start with a definition. Can you define in simple terms for those not familiar, what is the co this concept of artificial intelligence? Um, well, artificial, well, as, as you can imagine, many, many different definitions, but I think uh, it, it comes down to three important things, namely to think, learn, and make decisions like humans do. And training systems to do that uh, is uh, uh, a task is uh, done uh, but uh, effectively, it is all about providing the system with the data uh, um, it requires to analyze that and come back with uh, decisions that are not so obvious often because of the volume of the data involved. So in the nutshell, it's, it's about making systems smarter. And all the term smart has been used quite extensively over the last decade to describe everything uh, to the point that it started uh, losing its meaning. Uh, but uh, for me, what that really means is to move away from predefining how the system will uh, use the information to make the decision uh, based on rules, effectively to automate uh, some of the processes and to make the system more autonomous so that the system can actually be more flexible when it comes to uh, you know, uh, acting on the information that has been provided. Uh, and of course, there's a whole question about the term itself, you know, artificial intelligence. What's the you know difference between artificial and human intelligence, if there is such a thing? Uh, and why is intelligence as such? Um, typically, the way that we tend to think of AI these days, intelligence refers to uh, mathematical algorithms, uh, statistical training to big volumes of data to come up with uh, answers to questions. Uh, and those questions, of course, will be very domain-specific, application-specific, depending on what is it that you're trying to uh, to, to study. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a quite broad area, many, many different ways of potentially thinking about it. And I think uh, often just talking about AI uh, without looking at specific examples makes it very difficult for uh, end users to relate to the concept and sure. to see exactly what sort of benefits they'll get out of it. Right. So, so may maybe let's go there. Um, what are you sort of seeing as some of the most innovative real-world business applications of AI? Because we hear a lot about it, and I suppose most or, or many people have played around with ChatGPT and you know, starting to think about how is it that this becomes a tool? What, what are you seeing from your vantage point um, as a researcher in this field? Well, ChatGPT obviously has sparked much public interest in AI. It's one of the very first times that we had a direct experience with something that clearly had the AI, AI label on it. 
But uh, having said that, I think most end users uh, will have had experiences with AI, even if they don't necessarily call it AI. So for instance, every time you talk to Siri or Alexa and give it a voice command, what you are effectively doing is interacting with the system. The system takes uh, in your uh, the data from uh, whatever the voice command uh, instructs it to do, has to make sense of that, understand what you are trying to ask it to do. Uh, then use all the data available in the background, and then hopefully execute uh, the action appropriately. Uh, if you uh, have ever been on Amazon or Netflix and any of these kind of uh, services, uh, the, the fact that we have recommendation systems uh, are another example where machine learning can uh, take a lot of data in and come back with uh, an appropriate for your own preferences. Uh, suggestion. So there are a lot of systems of this nature that we, we do interact uh, with online. Uh, and when you start giving users examples, they say, yes, okay, I understand what you're getting at. But obviously, ChatGPT has changed that uh, agenda completely. Uh, everyone is now rushing to add AI to their own application. So I think the first instance we'll see more uh, applications, emer AI emerging through existing applications as opposed to as being a standalone thing that you interact with. A good example of that may be uh, Cortana's uh, AI system that Microsoft obviously already has uh, in, uh, in its online provision, and also their plan to extend the Microsoft Office suite to, uh, to add Copilot, which will be an AI assistant uh, and hopefully make us more productive, whatever that means. Right. Uh, but then, you know, from, from, a, from a business perspective, I think uh, it's, it's also in a very exciting area. Uh, to uh, to look out because uh, it gives rise to to things that uh, sometimes you see in sci-fi movies, uh, and now they start to become a bit of a reality. So, for instance, personalized marketing campaigns uh, can be uh, an example where businesses uh, try to innovate with uh, AI um, systems. Um, they uh, they may take a, a lot of data about the customer, but also similar customers create uh, campaigns specifically for for those customers and those instances that they are interacting with. Uh, provide targeting advertisement to entice customers, enhance the customer experience through, say, chatbots uh, and virtual assistants. Um, you know, there are a number of different ways that you can automate uh, and uh, make the uh, the system autonomous when they are interacting with the end customer so that uh, it makes it a little bit more personal. One thing we have to remember online, uh, it's very convenient uh, to be there and to, uh, you know, say shop uh, on, uh, on emails, but Actually, there isn't that much interaction as such. So maybe that's one way of bridging that gap. Right. There is a, there's a lot of hype around AI at the moment. Um, you know, we, we, we're hearing about it everywhere. Um, is, there, is there a historical analogy um, to AI? You know, when you look back at sort of, you know, significant changes, and, and, and you know, this is touted at the moment as one of the most significant changes, if not the most significant changes in the way that, society and business operates. Can you see parallels, historical parallels? I think we, we can obviously see many parallels with uh, technology coming and disrupting the status quo. Uh, but I think in this case, AI is, uh, is different in its ability to learn, adapt and make decisions by itself. Typically in the past, we were the operators of the technology. Here we design and let the technology do what the technology needs to do. So I think uh, AI has uh, clearly the potential to make uh, big changes to how we work and live our lives. Um, it's going to have significant impact, however you see it. 
for that, I, I am convinced. I'm not entirely sure how exactly it will happen and whether it will be positive or negative. Uh, but as far as the impact is concerned, I, I think I'll put it as, as high as the Internet Revolution or even the Industrial Revolution. Right. Uh, but uh, Darren, I think one other thing to, to remember is that uh, when we look back at historical examples, they don't always lend themselves to predicting the future as such. And for every industrial revolution out there, uh, they're difficult to explain and much debate the alternative trajectories. And often when you look back, it's easy to explain why things happen the way they happen. Uh, but when you try to predict the future, uh, it's actually much harder than that. And I've learned the hard way not to make predictions about the future. Right. But maybe if I just give one simple example of, uh, of how difficult it is to, uh, to make reliable predictions uh, about the future. Only a couple of years ago, Facebook changed the name to Meta because everyone sort of expected that metaverses were going to take over the world. Uh, and gradually, we're seeing everyone moving away from that sort of vision. Not that the technology is not progressing, so we have more VR, more AR, and everything else in between, but it hasn't picked up the way we expected it to be. Saturday it came, changed completely the landscape, uh, and suddenly, you know, uh, everything is in AI, including Facebook. I don't expect them to change the name again now uh, <laughs> to do uh, something around GDPT. But, you know, you, you get the, the point that, you know, it's very difficult to make predictions, not for the long term, but even for the short term sometimes. Right, right. And, and, and nobody really uses a segue uh, at all. So you know, there's, there's another one, um, uh, which, which I suppose le leads into my next question. Um, you know, th there's the hype cycle, right? We're, 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 we, we all know about the hype cycle where early on in a sort of revolutionary technologies life, there is this mass expectation Afterwards, there's the sort of valley of disappointment, and then you know, the, then the real applications uh, begin. Where, where are we? Uh, uh, you know, are we on that curve somewhere when it comes to AI? And, and if so, where are we? So I think uh, with regards to the uh, to the hype cycle, we will probably see that AI diffuses much faster than uh, other technologies um, because uh, it will probably end up with many existing systems in the beginning. So I gave earlier on the example of Microsoft. Uh, uh, planning to embed AI in Microsoft Office, uh, a software application that's used daily by hundreds of millions of users out there. Uh, and as a result, it will instantly become available to all of them, or more or less instantly. I suppose there'll be a business model decision associated with that uh, adoption sure. decision there. But once that happens, uh, AI will have a clear route to the market, to the end user. Uh, other technologies uh, have not benefited from such established um, you know, adoption uh, routes, and, and, and as a result, yeah. it makes it so much more difficult for, for end users to start interacting, get the knowledge, see how they're actually going to make use of this technology to, uh, to create a tangible benefit, and that takes time. Um, so I think the augmentation will be the first point, and by that stage, once we have reached a, a mature level of that, we'll start seeing new, completely self-contained uh, AI applications as well. Right. Okay. Um, one of your areas of research um, has been employee satisfaction and work-life balance. Um, what do you think AI's impact is going to be? Or can we know what AI's impact is going to be on the employee experience? Uh, well, that's a very interesting question. I think this is the point where I become a little bit more cynical about things. Uh, okay. Because everyone is very excited. I'm personally very excited about the technology, but Right. I'm less excited about how we go um, about utilizing it on a day-to-day -day basis and what it means for the individuals. 
And a lot of the discussions around AI uh, at the individual level is about job displacement. AI is coming to get your job. Uh, I think uh, there is some truth in that. Uh, and it's a very natural uh, first uh, point uh, to, to consider. But that's, that's part of any industrial revolution. You know, before we had cars, we had, uh, we had horses uh, pulling cars, uh, and those kind of jobs were displaced. And that's part of the natural evolution of things. Where I am, I am very excited about is AI, of course, augmenting and supporting uh, users at, um, at the individual level. So for instance, automation of repetitive tasks that no one should be doing. We're not robots. There must be better ways that we can spend our time, uh, leading to, say, enhanced productivity and efficiency, leading to better decision making. Um, those type of uh, positive effects hopefully will have an impact on a positive work engagement. You know, you, you engage more with your work, we feel better about you and what you're contributing to your organization to feel better about as a professional. And hopefully that, in theory, is going to leave more time for you to do the things that really matter. Uh, and it will, in theory, again, reduce your workload. And then in theory, and in turn, will hopefully have a, a, an impact, a positive impact on work-life balance. And I say, I said three times a theory because what I suspect we'll end up doing is we'll have higher pressure to deliver more. Because we have these tools, we need to do more. And I think that will be really detrimental uh, to work engagement, to satisfaction, and to our lives more generally. You know, uh, we're not robots. We cannot sustain the same kind of pace that the machines can. Um, so we need to learn why it's important, focus our attention to that, focus our creative flow to that. And let machines do maybe the things that are more mundane. Right. I, I remember my late father uh, saying that the worst day in his professional career as a lawyer was the day he got a fax machine because suddenly everything just sped up. And, and what you're saying is that's going to happen again on Turbo. Absolutely. Uh, but I'm also worried about uh, the perceptions around work outputs. So for instance, uh, imagine that uh, I, I produce an article for an academic paper. It's actually not a, a point of imagination. Something is very tangible right now. There's a lot of discussion about policy. Right. And I use AI to write a research paper uh, and to augment my writing. I have to declare that to the editors, but I don't have to declare, for instance, that I've used word processing or proofreader. So we, we go to accept those uh, uh, augmentations of our work as positive ones, but when it comes to AI, we don't want to be seen as using the system to produce work because that has perceptions, that influences the perceptions around the quality of the work, whether it is mine, whether it is the same kind of uh, quality that a shipment can produce as if shipments, we have all the answers, we always produce work that is uh, of top quality, whether there's any bias in the work and so on. Uh, so I think uh, there's going to be a shift in in how we tend to approach work produced by AI in, in the short term until we adjust and calibrate our expectations. I'm not sure how long that will take and how exactly it will work. But uh, every time you involve humans and that kind of scale in a, a, any ICT system, it's it's always, uh, you know, uh, a recipe for disaster. Uh, right. So um, I'm, I'm bracing myself to see how things will develop in the yeah. next few months. You, you raise an interesting issue because one of the things that the digital revolution has created has been huge amounts of output and uh, you know the amount of information available, the amount of data available uh, has just gone off the charts. And, and the ability of us humans to absorb that, analyze it, um, work with it has been, I think, a challenge across work environments. And it sounds from what you're saying that AI is only going to make it worse because if you can 
produce that research paper all that much faster, the, 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 the reader on the other side still has to use the same amount of time to absorb the information that's being served up. But there's just going to be so much more of it. Or probably they use AI to summarize things. So then we end up right. relying even more on writing right. and consuming the uh, the, um, the material on the content. Uh, and that has, again, implications as to how we tend to think. Uh, right. Since I got my first mobile phone, I can hardly remember any numbers, including my own. Uh, while in the past, I could remember all those numbers. And it's a very simple example there. Uh, but uh, one will imagine that our ability to absorb information, to process it, to critically think about it and analyze it, to come back with the summary of our own. Uh, these are really important uh, skills that we should command and master and practice continuously. If we start relying on the machines to, to make these things happen for us, then I'll dare say, ask, what is our role in, in all this? So, so you mentioned um, you know, the impact of social media, um, and what it's done uh, to society, um, you know, it, that that was perhaps an unexpected consequence of um, you know the online revolution of the last thirty years. Uh, well, one of the unexpected consequences was the sort of increased social isolation and also an increased political polarization, um, which you know a lot of uh, researchers and and I think public policymakers are are drawing a line straight to um, you know social media and, and the dynamics there. Um, do we have a, a way of, you know, you started to talk about you know, extra work. What about other societal impacts that AI may have? I think that there's going to be a number of uh, potential uh, things to watch out for. Uh, we tend to think as AI as being the only uh, ICT system out there that uh, has uh, such big widespread uh, impact, but uh, everything we've experienced online has a similar impact. So it, as far as I'm concerned, technology is technology and it is not about the technology, but how users go about utilizing it. Right. So social impact was supposed to democratize uh, our societies, to get everyone involved, uh, to give you a voice and to give a voice to people who didn't have a voice. But what he actually ended up doing is creating so much noise that uh, those who were the louder will be the ones who dominate the discussions. I think actually created much more dominance than the promised good. Uh, but this is not a reflection of the technology as such. Uh, this is a reflection as to how we went about using uh, the systems. Uh, even when you know we're looking at things that are more user-oriented, say, so for instance, uh, online shopping, uh, there are possibilities that the technology, instead of actually engaging you more in the process, it ends up alienating you. So because we tend to do more online shopping these days for the convenience purposes, we end up not going out of the house. And right. a, a big part of shopping was that social dimension. You, know, you talk to the systems, they smile at you. Uh, you, uh, you do some small talk about the weather. It's obviously much better there than it is in, in the UK. Uh, so you probably have happier <laughs> things Certainly to Certainly Newcastle. About. I've been to Newcastle. The weather there is nothing to talk about. But you, you can see how by uh, trying to become more efficient, more uh, to, to reap those convenient benefits, you, you end up actually uh, not spending time with, uh, with friends and family at the mall or even just interacting with the shop assistants. Um, so I think we, we need to learn how to use digital technology more broadly, not just AI more effectively. And, and it's, it comes down to educating the users, to explaining to the users what the alternatives are, uh, to, to, uh, to give them, if you like, examples of uh, good practice, uh, to teaching them how to actually use the system effectively. We shouldn't take these things, simple things for granted, uh, sometimes uh, we assume that they are there, but they're not there. 
And then on the wider uh, scale, there are a number of uh, potential things we could do. Uh, obviously, we do have ethical frameworks in place. We, uh, we have uh, uh, guidelines for ethical design and development. We do impact assessment, long-term monitoring of the situation. Uh, but I think it all comes down to engaging all the stakeholders, especially those who rely more on the technology uh, to, to express their views and to, to somehow synthesize that into uh, a solution that works for everyone. I know it sounds quite uh, idealistic, <laughs> but if you start making compromises before you even try to get to that ideal place, even if you're never going to get to the ideal place, and even if you never manage to get everyone to agree what that looks like, at least you know, you know that uh, you have higher chances of, of achieving right. that. But it is a really big uh, challenge. Yeah, I, I think one of the... Uh... One of the lessons we learned from sort of social media over the last decade is that not everybody plays by the same ethical rules. And so whereas perhaps good actors, you know, quote unquote, will meet those ethical guidelines and restrain themselves, you know, in a digital world where, you know, look, look at crypto and some of the, the fraudulent activity that's happened there, that look at social media and the impact of, foreign actors uh, on elections, you've got plenty of examples where these these open border systems um, draws the worst actors in uh, who then take advantage of those systems. So, you know, are we going to see the same thing here? Absolutely. And there's no question about it. Uh, and we're already seeing examples of it. Uh, I mean, I'll speak for, for higher education, if nothing else. Uh, where there's, uh, there are policies uh, uh, enacted uh, to uh, to start declaring uh, how you're using AI because there are fears that people will use AI to uh, uh, to get an, if you like an advantage when it comes mm. to publishing research. Uh, but then, how exactly do you enforce that? You know, it's one thing having a policy and having the the best intentions in the world, uh, but actually demonizing the technology itself because there are bad actors out there who may not play by the same rules. I find that to be problematic because you're actually penalizing those who want to play by the rules and who want to make a good use of the technology. It is a very difficult uh, thing to do. And as with uh, all human history, I'm not sure what the solution is. Uh, well, are, the solution is a lot know. more startups who, who are going to have to deal with these problems <laughs> and find solutions for them, right? Uh, well, I mean, startups are, are always part of the solution. Uh, but uh, I think the the, the the uh, the problems are fundamentally about human nature. It's not so much about the technology because you can just remove all the technology. We still have the same problems, right? Sure. So I wish there but was you, a, a simple but, but, button but, you, you know, can press and also, make it happen. Right, but we also learned that you can kill a lot more people with a gun than you can with a, with a slingshot. So, you know, as technology advances, <laughs> the, the, the ability to do bad, uh, uh, you know, inflict damage also uh, you know, increases. Now that's a very that's a very point. And AI has that kind of uh, potential uh, effect yeah. and, uh, and and impact. We need to be aware of the dangers. We need to be aware of the challenges ahead. We need to be proactive about them. Uh, everyone uh, was caught by surprise, but uh, by GDPD coming and uh, you know taking the, the incident by storm. Uh, now I don't think there are excuses anymore. Uh, yeah. There were calls, for instance, to delay its progress say, for six months until we figure out what we're going to do. What the hell are we going to do with this thing? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I've been thinking about even simple things as to how am I going to use AI, say, in, uh, in, in my assignments uh, back at the university. And I still haven't figured out how to best do this. I don't think putting moratorium on 
uh, on AI is going to, to solve any problem. Instead, what we need to do is to start having more active public dialogues about how exactly those policies will form and continue evolving. Because I don't see this as a fire and forget type of approach. Once you have a policy on AI, that's it. Okay, we're done for the next 10 years. This is an area that's going to change so quickly, so fast, uh, that uh, we need to keep on you know, adapting to it for the foreseeable future. Right. Okay. So, so when, when you and I met in Jerusalem, um, in a room full of academics, many of whom research uh, AI, there was a clear split between the the optimists and the pessimists. Um, and you know, I, I was sitting next to one uh, fairly young researcher next to me who was sort of shaking her head in dismay uh, about what the future is going to look like. So, 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 Savas, where, where do you put yourself? Are you in the optimist camp or in the pessimist camp? Uh, well, I'm I'm probably somewhere in the middle. I mean, I see a lot of potential for AI. Uh, you you know, everyone in in academia, where it comes for research or for teaching and learning purposes, can use it to to become more productive. I, I thoroughly believe that, and we've seen really good case uh, cases of that uh, in the teaching and learning space. There are so many things you can potentially do, like uh, you know, having chatbots to provide personalized answers to queries that children may have. If you are in a classroom of three hundred students. You can appreciate how difficult it is to create that kind of personal rapport with students and answer uh, individual questions. Sometimes the, the students even won't ask the questions because they feel shy or whatever. Uh, so, you know, we can open up new avenues. You can, you can create more content, more quality content, hopefully, uh, with more specialized, um, say, teaching cases. You can do data analytics with all the information that we've got from the online virtual learning environments. Uh, so there are a number of potential good cases that you can see how uh, higher education will benefit from it. I think a lot of the negatives that uh, we tend to focus on relate to obviously assessment and demonstrating that you've mastered those skills and competencies. Uh, so for instance, uh, I, in my uh, one of my modules, I asked students to apply theory to a practical case. Uh, and I've tried that uh, question using GPT. And it, it did provide a, a reasonable good answer. I'll probably pass it. <laughs> uh, but I think the, uh, the the relative advantage of students going down the route of presenting work that GPT has uh, created as their own is going to be short-lived. Uh, the moment everyone follows the same sort of approach, there's very small relative advantage. It produces more or less the same output. And even if we don't recognize it immediately that the very first uh, copy of that work, of the answer, was produced by AI, all the subsequent ones will look very similar to it. So you can actually tell who is uh, using GPT to provide an answer. By having to settle that, uh, I think the bigger question is, what's the alternative? How do you actually engage with AI in the assessment process and make it an integral part? And for the last six months, I've been contemplating that question. <laughs> and I have to say, I have more questions than answers right now. So, you know, it's a, it's a really difficult one. Well, in that case, Alice, I think what we're going to need to do is bring you back on in six months' time and see if you've <laughs> see if you've cracked it and and see where you are on the optimism pessimism scale. Then, uh, uh, absolutely, and uh, I suspect it will be a balance between the two. Uh, in fact, the the best solution I've come uh, to uh, uh, to read so far is that you need more personal uh, and closer interaction with the students to actually learn more about them, understand where they come from, who they are, how they think. So when you actually see the piece of work, you can see it as a reflection of the student who, who you have in front of you, as opposed to an AI, uh, you know, uh, a response that came from from an ICT. It's a very difficult to do it when you have, you know, big classes. Well, it, a, another example of how AI is going to create more work for us rather than less.
Uh, indeed, because now I have to do more things to just make sure that children's play by the rules. Right? <laughs> there you go. So you're going to be professor and policeman. Samus Papagianidis, um, the David Gomer Professor of Innovation and Enterprise at Newcastle University. Thank you very much for being on Definitely Uncertain. It's been a, a really interesting uh, and, and wide-ranging discussion, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, great. Wonderful. Thanks, everybody, for watching and listening, and uh, more podcasts coming at your way soon. Bye-bye.